Abramowitz from UC Davis School of Medicine reaching out to you with some more internal medicine essential questions for students. So I'm going to be going through five uh, questions today for our students and any other students that are interested in this. And I know there's a lot of medical students that are unfortunately not able to do their clinical duties currently. We definitely, definitely, definitely miss you guys in the hospital and hope that you get back to us soon because it is not the same not having students around to teach and interact with and uh, watch grow as you guys are learning to take care of your patients. So I hope you get back to us soon. So the next question I'm going to do is item 27 in the infectious disease section of I Am Essentials for Students. Uh, this is a 26-year-old woman who undergoes follow-up evaluation after completing an appropriate antibiotic course for a urinary tract infection that was diagnosed three days ago. She is currently asymptomatic. She has had five similar episodes in the past year. In all cases, the symptoms began after sexual intercourse and responded well to antibiotic treatment. She has increased her fluid intake and routinely voids after sexual intercourse. She is otherwise healthy with no medical problems and no history of sexually transmitted infections. She currently takes no medications and does not use spermicides. Physical examination, including vital signs, is normal. Which of the following is the most appropriate next step to reduce this patient's risk of urinary tract infection? A. Long-term daily suppressive antibiotic therapy. B. Postcoital antimicrobial prophylaxis. C. Recommendation to drink cranberry juice or D, use of a spermicide before intercourse. And again, those choices are A, long-term daily suppressive antibiotic therapy, B, postcoital intramicrobial prophylaxis, C, recommendation to drink cranberry juice, or D, use of a spermicide before intercourse. And so the answer to this one is B, uh, and B was postcoital antimicrobial prophylaxis. Uh, this would be the most appropriate next step in preventing recurrent urinary tract infections in this patient. Um, and uh, I think the antibiotic you're going to choose to do this is going to vary depending on resistance patterns in your own environment. Um, in the text here, they recommend ciprofloxacin, but there are some settings where there's higher levels, i.e. greater than 20% resistance to ciprofloxacin. Um, uh, specifically with E. coli. So uh, you might use Cipro, Cepra, <laughs> Cepra, or another agent depending on resistance patterns. But regardless, uh, recurrent UTIs in young sexually active women are more commonly a reinfection rather than relapse and are often associated with sexual intercourse. Consequently, a detailed sexual history should, should be obtained from female patients with a presentation such as that in this patient. Symptoms of UTI are often related to the use of spermicidal agents because spermicides decrease the number of healthy vaginal lactobacilli and predispose women to UTIs. Thus, that is why that would have been a poor choice in terms of preventing future urinary tract infections, i.e. Uh, having her use spermicides. However, this patient does not use spermicidal agents. The recommended prophylaxis against recurrent UTIs is liberal fluid intake and postcoital voiding. 
Although these are not, I underline not, evidence-based recommendations, they are unlikely to be harmful. And anecdotally, a lot of people say they work. If UTIs continue to occur despite these measures, as they have in this patient, prophylaxis with a postcoital antibiotic, such as ciprofloxacin, is appropriate. Long-term suppressive antibiotic therapy can be an effective method for preventing postcoital UTIs, but patients may have difficulty adhering to this regimen. In addition, of course, it is associated with increased costs, antimicrobial resistance, and candidal superinfections. Randomized clinical trials have not shown that drinking cranberry juice reduces the incidence of recurrent UTIs, including postcoital UTIs. And finally, as I mentioned, adding a spermicide is likely to increase, not decrease, this patient's incidence of UTI. Okay, so moving on here to uh, question number 28. A 62-year-old man is evaluated in the emergency department for a two-day history of fever, vomiting, dysuria, and lower abdominal and perineal pain. On physical examination, temperature is 39.2 degrees centigrade, or 102.6 degrees Fahrenheit. Blood pressure is 95 over 65 millimeters of mercury, and pulse rate is 122 per minute. The mucous membranes are dry. Suprapubic tenderness is present. Rectal examination shows an enlarged and extremely tender prostate. Laboratory studies show a leukocyte count of 18,000 per microliter, with 70% segmented neutrophils. Your analysis shows more than 50 leukocytes per high-power field and many bacteria. The serum creatinine level is normal. Treatment with intravenous fluids and parenteral ciprofloxacin is started. Urine culture grows Escherichia coli sensitive to fluoroquinolones. Three days after admission, the patient continues to have fever and abdominal and perineal pain. A repeat leukocyte count shows a result of 16,000 per microliter. And recall that uh, previously he was at 18,000 per microliter. Which of the following is the most appropriate management for this patient? A, discontinue ciprofloxacin and start gentamicin. B, insert a catheter for bladder drainage. C, obtain a transrectal ultrasound. Or D, perform prostate massage. Again, those choices are A, discontinue Cipro and start gentamicin. B, insert a catheter for bladder drainage. C, obtain a transrectal ultrasound. D, perform prostate massage. So put your nickel down. Oh, I think that was a quarter that you put down, but I, uh, you could have gotten away with a nickel, but you must be confident about your choice. So the choice here is C. The most appropriate management for this patient is transrectal ultrasound to evaluate for prostatic abscess. The patient presents with a clinical picture that is consistent with acute prostatitis, and treatment with an appropriate intravenous antibiotic is initiated. If there's no clinical improvement after 36 to 72 hours of treatment with continued fever, pain, and leukocytosis, the most likely cause is a complication such as a prostatic abscess. It's kind of funny because we had a patient just like this get admitted. Well, not exactly like this. 
he actually turned out to have uh, recurrent urinary tract infections and um, was having a lot of perineal pain and on rectal exam had an extremely tender boggy prostate, but he got better pretty quickly with antibiotics and we didn't need to go looking for a prosthetic abscess. But, you know, just proving that these cases really are similar to what you see in the real world. Anyway, if there's no clinical improvement after 36 to 72 hours of treatment with continued fever, pain, leukocytosis, the most likely cause is a complication such as a prostatic abscess. Further evaluations with a transrectal ultrasound or abdominal and pelvic CT scan is indicated. If a prostatic abscess is identified, ultrasound guided or surgical drainage may sometimes be indicated. Parenteral administration of empiric antibiotics is appropriate for a patient who presents with acute prostatitis and systemic signs of illness and requires hospital admission, which obviously based on this guy's vital signs uh, and appearance he did. Causative organisms of acute prostatitis in older men are usually gram-negative bacteria with E. coli being the most common. Fluoroquinolones and trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole have a broad spectrum of antibacterial activity against gram-negative pathogens, have excellent prostate penetration, and are usually well tolerated. So, you know, with this um, patient, uh, you know, potentially he might have been started on intravenous ceftriaxone um, as well. That's probably what uh, we would have used here. In fact, we did use that a few days ago. And then when he uh, went to a skilled nursing facility yesterday, uh, we switched him over to a fluoroquinolone antibiotic for a 21-day course. Intravenous antibiotic therapy may be changed to oral treatment when the patient shows clinical improvement and can tolerate oral intake. So although aminoglycosides, getting at the the wrong choices here, although aminoglycosides have excellent coverage for gram-negative organisms and would be reasonable to use a, as dual therapy with another antibiotic in an acutely ill patient, it would not be appropriate to switch to an aminoglycoside as monotherapy um, in a patient who has not benefited from treatment with sensitive antibiotic without excluding a potential complication such as an abscess. Transurethral catheterization should be avoided in acute prostatitis. If bladder drainage is necessary, it should be suprapubic to reduce the risk of prostatic abscess and septicemia. Furthermore, there is no indication for placement of a bladder catheter in this patient, uh, such as uh, due to an outflow obstruction. So regarding prostate massage or application of pressure to the prostate during a digital rectal exam, uh, this is used to express secretions from the prostate. At one time, this method was believed to be uh, actually therapeutically useful as a treatment for acute prostatitis. However, vigorous massage of the prostate should be avoided in acute prostatitis. It is not helpful diagnostically, is definitely very uncomfortable for the patient, and potentially increases the risk of bacteremia. So the key point with this question is that patients with acute prostatitis who do not respond to appropriate antibiotic therapy within 36 to 72 hours may have a complication such as a prostatic abscess. Okay, moving on to item 29. So we're just running them through right in a row here. I kind of liked most of these questions. A 20-year-old woman is evaluated because of a four-day history of abdominal pain. She is sexually active, 
Okay, so there's your neurocalcinics in this question, a young sexually active woman. So immediately you should start thinking about the possibilities for what would cause abdominal pain in a sexually active woman. And reports that her last menstrual period began five days ago. Symptoms include nausea, but no vomiting. Physical examination shows a temperature of 38.4 degrees centigrade or 101.1 Fahrenheit, blood pressure of 130 over 82 millimeters of mercury, pulse rate of 100 per minute, and respiratory rate of 18 per minute. There is moderate tenderness in the lower quadrants bilaterally with no rebound or guarding. Pelvic examination shows cervical motion tenderness and bilateral adnexal tenderness. Which of the following organisms most commonly cause this condition? So you have to know the diagnosis to know what organisms they're asking about, but I will give you the choices. And think about that. What is your diagnosis? Excellent. I think you got it right. A, oh, so choices here for which organism would be commonly causing this condition. A, Bacteroides species. B, Chlamydia trachomatis and Neisseria gonorrhea. C, Gardnerella vaginalis and herpes simplex virus. Or D, Trichomonas vaginalis and Mycoplasma genitalium. Again, those choices are A, Bacteroides species. B, Chlamydia trachomatis and Neisseria gonorrhea. C, G. vaginalis and herpes simplex virus. Or D. trichomonas and mycoplasma genitalium. So I'll give you a moment to consider that question. Do you want to put down your... Okay, I won't make you drop your quarter again this time. So the answer here uh, is B. So the choice would be uh, Chlamydia trachomatis and Neisseria gonorrhea. This patient has findings consistent with pelvic inflammatory disease, a.k.a. PID. The organisms most likely responsible for this condition are, in fact, Chlamydia trachomatis and Neisseria gonorrhea. PID is an ascending infection of the genital tract. Patients may present with endometritis, salpingitis, or both, and PID can be complicated by the develop of a, development of a tubo-ovarian abscess. PID is considered a polymicrobial infection. C. trachomatis and N. gonorrhea cause most infections, and other possible pathogens include enteric gram-negative organisms, organisms that originate from the normal vaginal flora, especially anaerobes, and streptococci. I think Peptostreptococcus is one of the big players in that, if I remember correctly. They don't comment on that here. The risk of PID is particularly high in sexually active young women, especially adolescents. All women with suspected PID should be tested for gonorrhea um, and chlamydia. They should also have a pregnancy test to exclude normal or ectopic implantation. The clinical diagnosis of PID is imprecise. PID should be considered in sexually active women who present with lower abdominal or pelvic pain in one or more of the following findings, cervical motion tenderness, uterine tenderness, or adnexal tenderness. The presence of mucopurulent cervical discharge or numerous leukocytes in a wet mount of vaginal secretions increases the specificity of the diagnosis. Other findings that increase diagnostic specificity include fever, so temperature greater than 38.3 degrees centigrade or 100 
0.9 Fahrenheit for you Fahrenheit-iters out there. Uh, increased erythrocyte sedimentation rate or C-reactive protein concentration and confirmation of infection with either N. gonorrhea or C. trachom uh, uh, with either N. gonorrhea or C. trachomatis. If the diagnosis is suspected, the patient should be tested for these two pathogens, although recommended antimicrobial regimens for PID target all possible causative organisms, because you never really know which, and again, it's a polymicrobial infection. In women, herpes simplex virus may also cause cervicitis. In men, urethritis may be caused by HSV, trichomonas vaginalis, or mycoplasma genitalium. However, these organisms are not the most likely causes of PID. So key point here, chlamydia, trachomatis, and Neisseria gonorrhea are the primary causes of pelvic inflammatory disease. So let us hop on over to the next question. Who said that? Something under my desk here, sorry. Uh, item 30, a 30-year-old man is evaluated in an urgent care clinic because of a two-day history of pain that is localized to the right testicle. He reports no recent trauma. He had unprotected intercourse with a new female partner within the last week. On physical examination, temperature is 37.7 degrees centigrade or 99.9 degrees Fahrenheit. The remainder of the vital signs are normal. No testicular masses are noted, but the posterior aspect of the right testicle is tender to palpation, as is the right spermatic cord. A urine sample is obtained for nucleic acid amplification testing. Which of the following is the most appropriate therapy? A, ceftriaxone and azithromycin. B, ceftriaxone and levofloxacin. C, levofloxacin and azithromycin. Or D, levofloxacin and doxycycline. Okay, so I'm going to preface this with I have changed the answers here a little bit, and I'll explain why I did that in a couple minutes. But the answer is A, and that would be ceftriaxone and azithromycin. And specifically, the dose of ceftriaxone would be 250 milligrams intramuscularly. Uh, so here you're be really being asked to diagnose someone and treat someone with epididymitis. A combination of ceftriaxone and azithromycin is the most appropriate treatment for this patient. Now, this question is a little dated because they're basing it on 2010 CDC recommendations around treatment of uh, gonorrheal and, and um, chlamydia infections. And uh, in the 2015 CDC recommendations, this changed a bit. It wouldn't be terrible if you gave ceftriaxone and doxycycline, which was the choice in the book, but on the CDC website, they're recommending ceftriaxone 250 milligrams uh, plus azithromycin one gram, uh, and the reason is they think there's a little better synergistic uh, play at work there, and also it's a one-time dose of azithromycin, so you're not relying on a patient's um, adherence to the medical regimen. Um, and if you want to give something orally, you can use cefixime uh, as an alternative as well, plus the one gram of azithromycin. So um, 
Acute epididymitis in sexually active men younger than 35 years of age is most frequently caused by chlamydia trachomatis. Neisseria gonorrhea also causes epididymitis in this age group. In older men, most infections occur in conjunction with urinary tract infection caused by enteric gram-negative organisms. Infection caused by Enterobacteriaceae should also be considered in men who have sex with men and who are the insertive partner in anal inter intercourse. So, so keep that in mind if you're seeing um, a, a particularly an older man, uh, you're going to be thinking about enterobacteriaceae, so things like E. coli, um, things that would normally cause a urinary tract infection, whereas in a younger person, you're going to be thinking about chlamydia and GC. Patients with epididymitis present with unilateral pain and tenderness in the epididymis and testes, uh, so so-called epididymitis orchitis. Their spermatic cord is enlarged and tender on palpation. Some patients may find relief with elevation of the testicle, whereas elevation usually exacerbates the pain of testicular torsion. So kind of re remember that. It's a really handy thing if you're working in the emergency room, urgent care, or a patient comes into your clinic with this. Again, feels better with elevation if it's epididymitis or chitis, it feels worse with elevation if it's testicular torsion. The finding of leukocytes on urine microscopic examination or positive leukocyte esterase on urine dipstick is supportive of the diagnosis. So when uh, N. gonorrhea or C. trachomatis infection is suspected, a urethral swab or urine sample should be obtained for nucleic acid amplification testing. Urine culture and susceptibility testing should also probably be done, but I think some of this depends somewhat on the population that you're seeing in this scenario. So in 2010, the CDC and um, uh, Centers for Disease Control, easy for me to say, Centers for Disease Control and Prevention recommended administration of Ceftrax on 250 milligrams intramuscular as a single dose for the treatment of all infections caused by N. gonorrhea because of reports of decreased susceptibility of N. gonorrhea isolates to cephalosporins and increasing reports of clinical failure with lower doses of ceftriaxone, i.e. 125 milligrams, which is kind of the dose we used to use when I was a resident back in the day, but now that's been doubled. In, in addition, all patients treated for N. gonorrhea should receive uh, azithromycin or doxy, but as I said, the current CDC recommendation is azithro because of the high rate of co-infection with chlamydia trachomatis and the additional activity of these agents against isolates with decreased susceptibility to cephalosporins. Um, by the way, for men who have sex with men and are at risk for both sexually transmitted infection and infection with enteric organisms, uh, uh, treatment with ceftriaxone and a fluoroquinolone, um, such as levofloxacin, is recommended. So again, you're going to sort of, sort of think three populations, the older population, um, the population of men who have sex with men, and then younger men uh, in terms of sorting through what type of therapy you're going to use when they present with epididymitis and or orchitis. So the key point here is empiric treatment for acute epididymitis in sexually active young um, men younger than 35 years of age consists of uh, ceftriaxone 
and azithromycin. Uh, although you wouldn't be um, getting too much trouble if you use doxycycline, azithromycin is probably a better choice, as I said. Whoa, I, I don't think I like that music very much. Let's try something else as a little refresher before our last question. Ah, that was much better. Okay, last question of the day here for you guys. Uh, and this is a classic question. It gets asked on the ABIM exam on the for the residents after they're done with residency training. It will show up on step two, step three, and I gotta guess maybe sometimes even on the shelf exam. So here we go. A 19-year-old man is admitted to the hospital with a four-day history of fever, fatigue, and pain in the elbows, wrists, and knees. He has also had progressive pain and swelling of the right knee and a rash on the right arm. On physical examination, temperature is 38.2 degrees centigrade, which is 100.8 degrees Fahrenheit. Blood pressure is 110 over 60 millimeters of mercury. Pulse rate is 95 per minute, and respiratory rate is 12 per minute. There is pain to palpation over the left wrist. The right knee is swollen and warm with significant effusion. The rash on the arm is shown. Well, shown to me only because you can't see it unless you have this book. So I'm going to describe it to you. Uh, you can't tell which part of the arm it is, of course, in the picture. But it looks like uh, about three or four uh, hemorrhagic pustules on an erythematous base. Uh, kind of hard to see from the light in the picture, so maybe it's better that you can't see it. <laughs> anyway, that's the description, which is important. Blood cultures are obtained and arthrocentesis of the right knee is performed. The synovial fluid leukocyte count is 60,000 per microliter with 90% polymorphonuclear neutrophils. Do you want me to say that again? Polymorphonuclear neutrophils. The results of Gram stain are negative. Which of the following is the most appropriate diagnostic test to perform next? Okay, so to do that, you got to kind of have some sense of what the diagnosis is. So the choices are A, anti-nuclear antibody and rheumatoid factor assays, B, biopsy and culture of a skin lesion, that you can't see because I had to describe it to you. C, HLA B27 testing, or D, nucleic acid amplification urine tests for Neisseria gonorrhea. Once again, choices are A, antinuclear antibody and rheumatoid factor assays, B, biopsy and culture of a skin lesion, C, HLA B27 testing, or D, nucleic acid amplification urine tests for Neisseria gonorrhea. So I'm going to let you contemplate that for a moment. So isn't that like the most relaxing track you've ever heard? You're just out in the forest, it's sunny, there's birds chirping, no people around, no pangolins running about. So why did I say pangolins? I saw this... Um, NPR, I don't know, I guess it was on a public television special on pangolins, which are these things that look a lot like anteaters, and they have these armor plates, 
which unfortunately has made them subject to being poached quite a bit to the point where they're almost going extinct, which is kind of depressing. But they, uh, they're, these uh, plates that they have are used uh, in Chinese uh, medicine, and they think that the pangolins had something to do with the coronavirus transmission. So kind of a fascinating story, but they have these really long tongues that are sometimes longer than their bodies, and they roll up in a ball when anyone uh, threatens them uh, in terms of predation. Anyway, I'm sure you were not interested in hearing about pangolins on this podcast, but there you have it. Look up that show when you get a chance. So the answer here is D. Um, the most appropriate next step in diagnosing this patient is a nucleic acid amplification urine test for Neisseria gonorrhea. This patient has evidence of an arthritis and dermatitis syndrome and should be evaluated for disseminated GC, also known as DGI or disseminated gonococcal infection. In contrast to non-gonococcal septic arthritis, patients with DGI present with migratory joint symptoms and often have involvement of several joints with, and this is key thing to know about this uh, disease, tenosynovitis, rather than involvement of a single joint. So a septic joint usually is one joint, um, but uh, this particular disease causes a disease in multiple joints. Asymmetric joint involvement helps to distinguish disseminated gonococcal infection from autoimmune disease-associated polyarthritis, which is typically symmetric. Skin lesions are found in more than 75% of patients with disseminated gonococcal infection, but may be few in number. Uh, consequently, that means you have to do a careful examination of the skin. Lesions are most likely to be found on the extremities. The classic lesion is characterized by a small number of necrotic vesicopustules on an erythematous base, but I have also seen hemorrhagic, these looked more hemorrhagic pustular to me in the picture, but uh, they can be vesicular, they can be sort of um, hemorrhagic and, uh, and frankly pustular looking. And they're usually over uh, tendons, by the way, but not always. Organisms are rarely cultured from the skin lesions of disseminated gonococcal infection, although they may be shown uh, through nucleic acid amplification techniques. So a key thing to know there is you can tap the knee that's hot, but you're not going to get the gonococcus uh, when you culture that knee joint. The nucleic acid amplification urine test for N. gonorrhea is a non-invasive, sensitive test for diagnosing gonorrhea in men. This test provides rapid results, i.e. within hours, and can help to guide therapy pending return of blood and synovial fluid culture results. Mucosal, mucosal cultures, including of the throat, anus, urethra, or in women, the cervix, may also be helpful in establishing the diagnosis. These cultures tend to have a higher diagnostic yield than blood and synovial fluid cultures in patients with disseminated gonococcal infection. So back in my residency, we didn't have this nucleic acid amplification test, and we had a culture, as they would say, every orifice, except the ears and the nose. Uh, although this young patient may have autoimmune inflammatory arthritis, such as systemic lupus erythematosus or rheumatoid arthritis, the prevalence of HLA B27 in patients with reactive arthritis is only 50%. 
Consequently, HLA B27 testing is not very useful in establishing a diagnosis. In addition, reactive arthritis tends to present as symmetric oligoarthritis, so four or fewer joints. In this patient's arthritis is asymmetric. The associated rash, keratoderma blenorragica, which is uh, un consists of uh, hyperkeratotic lesions on the palms and soles, which are not present in this patient. Patients with reactive arthritis may also have conjunctivitis, urethritis, oral ulcers, and circinate balanitis, which is sort of, well, you can look at a picture of that. It's hard to describe. Key point, mucosal specimens from the throat, anus, and urethra, or cervix in women tested for nucleic acid amplification or culture have a higher diagnostic yield than blood and synovial fluid cultures in patients with disseminated gonococcal infection. So thank you for joining me today on this podcast. I'll be back sometime the next, I don't know, 24 to 138 hours, depending on how busy we are here in the hospital. We have about eight or 10 COVID patients in our hospital at this juncture. And things seem reasonably under control, although it is a time of uncertainty, as you all know. Thanks for listening. I'll see you soon. Oh, and I got some nice feedback about including Billy Collins in that last podcast. So I'm going to give you some more Billy Collins poetry here. I hope you enjoy it. It's a short poem. Hang in there and listen. You might enjoy it. It's very relaxing. So I'll read this poem. I'll start with this poem. Uh, it's just called You Reader. I wonder how you are going to feel when you find out that I wrote this instead of you. <laughs> that it was I who got up early to sit in the kitchen and mention with a pen the rain-soaked windows, the ivy, wallpaper, and the goldfish circling in its bowl. Go ahead and turn aside, bite your lip and tear out the page, but listen it was just a matter of time before one of us happened to notice the unlit candles and the clock humming on the wall. Plus, nothing happened that morning. A song on the radio, a car whistling along the road outside. And I was only thinking about the shakers of salt and pepper that were standing side by side on a placemat. I wondered if they had become friends after all these years or if they were still strangers to one another, like you and I, who managed to be unknown and known to each other at the same time, me at this table with a bowl of pears, you leaning in a doorway somewhere near some blue hydrangeas reading this. Yeah. Thank you.